Welcome to Spirits Podcast, a boozy dive into mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week we pour a drink and learn about a new story from around the world. I'm Amanda. And I'm Julia. And this is episode 185, Disability in Fairy Tales with Amanda LaDuke. Yeah, Amanda was an incredible guest and had so many insights that I were invaluable. So you're going to absolutely love this episode and you're going to learn a lot from it. Absolutely. I did too. And I added so much to my reading list. I so appreciate that she came on to speak with us. And I think you guys are going to love her perspective. You know who else I love and also love their perspectives of? Our new patrons, Jordan, Donald, Megan Moon, Samuel, and Karotsos. And of course, Amanda, our beloved patrons, our supporting producer-level patrons like Keegan, Landon, Baz, Mr. Folk, Jen, Hannah, Alicia, Sarah, Nikki, Megan, Deborah, Molly, Skyla, Samantha, Neil, Jessica, and Phil Fresh, and our legends, the on high, lovely, lovely human beings, Eden, Drew, Avonlay, Ashlea, Chelsea, Clara, Stephen, Francis, Josie, Kylie, Morgan, BME Up, Scotty, Audra, Chris, Mark, Sarah, and Jack Marie. Your support literally makes it possible for us to make this podcast and for this to be our jobs, and we are so grateful. Julia, remind us what we were drinking during this episode. So I went with a cocktail for this episode called The Violent Fairy Tale. It's a part uh, cachaca, which I've been really enjoying. I bought a bottle for another cocktail that we did recently, and I've just been trying to find other ones to use it because I love it, and I can get a little tired of caparinas every once in a while, but this is very good. And then it's part uh, Amaro Montenegro, a lot of bitters, and then some sparkling wine on top. So it starts off a little bit dark, a little bit herbal, and then you get this hint of brightness from the sparkling wine, which I think is really, really nice. It was delicious, and I enjoy just putting sparkling wine in various uh, other liquids and it just makes me feel quite fancy. Mm, nothing fancier than a dash of sparkling wine. Or relaxing in the sun or near a window with whatever you are reading, watching, or listening to right now. Julia, do you have any recommendations for us? Yeah, I have a book recommendation. It is A Song of Wraiths and Ruins by Roseanne A. Brown. If you took my recommendation a while back and read Children of Blood and Bone, it's very similar to that. It's got kind of like the magic of Spirited Away, which I think is a really, really great combo. And it's got like this really beautiful twisting intrigue like Game of Thrones does. So if you like all those things and you want to support Black writers, this is a great book to pick up. Again, that's A Song of Wraiths and Ruin by Roseanne A. Brown. And as always, we have a link in the description or at spiritspodcast.com slash books, which takes you to bookshop.org, which is a sort of co-op uh, website that distributes profits to all of the indie bookstores that are members of it. So we love supporting them. And if you're looking for a way to order this book online, you can do it through spiritspodcast.com slash books. And for another recommendation, the sitcom that Julia Assistant directed, that I produced, that Eric Silver wrote, and that Brandon Grugel directed from Multitude Next Stop is now complete. Season one is now out in its entirety, and it's a wonderful time for you to jump in and listen. This is a heightened reality world where everybody is funny, where the things that happen to you during your day are not just strange, but like wacky and a story that you tell forever. And these characters are, I think, unlike some sitcoms that I watch, they actually like each other. They actually want each other to succeed. And even when they mess up, you know, they are trying to get better. And listening to a world where all of that is happening and the jokes really land, it feels like it's made for me. And it just sounds so lush. The music is so 90s. It's there's so much to love about it. And I would love if you checked it out today. Yeah, I'm really proud of the work that we did on it. And Next Stop was a delight 
one to make, two to listen to. So I, I really think any of our listeners would enjoy it. Absolutely. So you can look up Next Stop in the podcast app you are in right now or go to nextstopshow.com. And finally, our new BFF Zoe from DFTBA really came through again. And guys, we have a new piece of digital merch. We have a Spirits coloring book. That's right. It's an official Spirits coloring book. You can download it as a PDF. You can print them out. You can color them wherever with whoever you want. It is so much fun. There is a Kelpie. There is a Bigfoot. There is the uh, the skeletal cowboy and the forest spirit from the beautiful posters that we just made. Yeah, I'm I'm very excited. I picked some of my favorite ghouls and monsters and figures from mythology to include in this. And Zoe did an incredible job in rendering them. And I have had fun drawing my own. I've been breaking out the colored pencils and I've just been rocking this thing. And we're just so stoked that no matter where you live in the world, you don't have to worry about shipping. You don't have to, you know, wait a long time for it to get to you. This is something that you can enjoy and to help make your week a little bit brighter right now. So you can pick up a copy of our beautiful new coloring book at spiritspodcast.com slash merch, along with the posters, the spirits uh, beanie that we have, and all of the other merch, the sort of better our merch sells, the more we're able to make. So we have some serious ideas in the pipeline and your support now helps us make that happen even faster. Yeah, we have cute stuff. Go buy it. And make sure you check the description of this episode for all of the links and resources that our guest Amanda mentions during this interview. We absolutely loved having her on, and I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. Number 185, Disability in Fairy Tales with Amanda LaDuke. We are so excited to welcome Amanda LeDuc to the show. Her essays and stories have appeared in publications across Canada, the U.S., and the U.K., and she is most recently the author of Disfigured by Coach House Books, came out in February, and the novels The Miracles of Ordinary Men, and then the forthcoming The Centaur's Wife. She has cerebral palsy and lives in Hamilton, Ontario, where she works as the communications coordinator for the Festival of Literary Diversity, Canada's first festival for diverse authors and stories. Amanda, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It is a pleasure to have you. Absolutely. I was so stoked to read about your book and then also to read your book. So would you start by telling us a little bit about Disfigured on fairy tales, disability and making space and sort of what motivated you to start writing this book? Sure. So um, Disfigured is kind of a hybrid mix of a memoir and then also cultural criticism. And it looks at my um, experience and life growing up as a child and then a woman with cerebral palsy um, and intertwines that experience with fairy tales, both the fairy tales that I read when I was younger, i.e. the Disney versions of many of the fairy tales that we know and love, as well as some of the older versions of the fairy tales that are maybe not as well known to audiences nowadays. And I got the idea for doing a book of this nature about two years ago. I was on a writing retreat in um, off the coast of Seattle, actually. And I was walking through the forest one day working on another book, not this one. And uh, I was just sort of, as I was walking, struck by the sort of connections between the forest and disability, because the forest is a place that we often associate with fairy tales. um, But we also, at the same time, sort of automatically assume that disabled people, primarily physically disabled people, but also people with other disabilities as well, 
don't generally access the forest very much um, in many cases because people who have mobility aids, for example, can't actually get through the forest unless there's you know clearly marked paths for them. Um, but then when I was thinking about that, I was also thinking about the fairy tales that I knew and loved and realizing as I thought back over them that a lot of the characters in the fairy tales that I knew were disabled in some way, shape or form but they were never painted as disabled characters as such. They were just painted as either villains or people who had some sort of identifiable difference that set them apart from the rest of society. And I really started thinking about that and what that narrative has done in society over the last couple of centuries, because even though fairy tales, you know, are things that we think of now primarily as stories for children in many ways, these are narratives and the arc of these narratives is actually repeated in a lot of the stories that we tell and we see and are exposed to in mainstream media and mainstream storytelling and, you know, films and television that we watch nowadays. And they repeat these sort of disability archetypes and stereotypes. Um, and I wanted to explore how the presuppositions and assumptions about disability that happen in fairy tales really have a lasting impact on how we view disability in the world today. And you do. And it is so fascinating and um, educational and entertaining and heartbreaking and poignant to read through. Um, I actually felt it's super helpful that you started the book with a sort of like examination of what exactly a fairy tale is and sort of where it arose in at least the Western cultural canon. Could you help kind of ground our discussion today with that same explanation? Sure. So fairy tales, as we know them in the Western world, they come from the, the term fairy tale comes from France from the 17th century from a writer named Madame Delnoy. And she was a woman writing in the 17th century. And she had what she called salons at her house. Um, and she wasn't the only person that did that. These were sort of a cultural phenomenon in France at the time. And you would have uh, often women who would gather together and they would tell stories. And the idea was to look Look at old folk tales that uh, passed around in France and Italy and Germany and the sort of general European era, and then embellished them in various ways. And as people sort of became familiar with the tales, the idea was to one up one another, another by becoming very great orators with the tales, right? So they would embellish the language and make them sound very literary. And essentially what it was, was sort of a, a gentrification, if you will, of the folk tales that had been passed around by, in many cases, the illiterate peasant class. Um, so the folktale as a genre is slightly separate from the fairy tale because folktales have all kinds of different magics and have existed in various different societies for thousands of years. And the fairy tale is kind of a, yeah, a gentrified uh, version of the tale. So in France in the 17th centuries, these fairy tales started being told more often um, and then the Brothers Grimm picked up on the tales in the um, 1800s, the mid-1800s to late 1800s, and uh, published them in the collected folk tales of the Brothers Grimm. And those were tales that then, you know, Disney latched on to many of those in the 20th century, um, looking at, you know, promoting them through movies and that sort of thing. And so there's this real progression of fairy tales from these kind of narratives that highlight the disenfranchised people and speak to ways that society can maybe change. But then there is a shift that happens in the 20th century where the focus is on the happy ending and they, they shy away from the more unpleasant 
versions of fairy tales and the unpleasant things that happen in fairy tales in favor of like making a world that's sort of bright and picture perfect. And what was interesting to me in the course of writing the book is that, you know, that kind of quote unquote fairy tale ending, that fairy tale lens, i.e. the happy, bright ending, doesn't always apply when you look at the disabled characters. Often disabled characters in fairy tales, even the modern versions of the fairy tales that we know, they meet some sort of, you know, they get their just desserts at the end. I mean, the, the Wicked Queen in Snow White, you know, transforms herself into an ugly hag and then she falls to her death uh, at one point in the film. Um, and it just it was really interesting to see how, you know, the fairy tale as a form has transmogrified and changed over the years, but has also remained the same in, in many instances in how it views the different body in the world. I love that. Um, I, I had a question just because you were you were talking about the characters that are disabled, but they're not framed as disabled in fairy tales. And you gave a great example there with Snow White. Are there any other examples that come to mind immediately that you think our listeners wouldn't think of off the top of their heads? Oh, for sure. So there is this fairy tale by the Brothers Grimm called The Maiden Without Hands. Mm-hmm. And essentially, the sort of very short Coles Notes versions of it... Um, is that it's about a woman who her father makes a bad bargain with the devil and she has her hands chopped off by the devil as a result of this bad bargain. And she has to go out into the world with her hands tied to her back and sort of subsist on the charity of others. Hmm. One thing leads to another. She meets and falls in love with a king and he makes her his wife. Um, But then she is deceived by the king's mother-in-law when he goes off to war. And she is once again set out into the world on her own with her severed hands and her young child, and she sort of has to subsist in the forest. Um, But there is an angel of God who comes to her in the forest and sort of helps her find a cottage and helps her survive, her and her son survive. And then the king eventually finds her, I think it's a total of 14 years later. He's seven years at war and then seven years looking for his wife and his child. And by the end of the film, or the end of the film, the end of the tale, Um, she has her hands grow back and the line in the tale itself is her hands grew back. And that is, uh, you know, something that, that often happens that God visits on people if they are, are, you know, have enough faith. And that really struck me because it's not a tale that people would necessarily know, but it mimics the way that we approach disability and the way that we talk about disability in the 20th and the 21st centuries. So no, we don't believe, I mean, many of us don't believe some people do. But most of us, I think, don't believe that, you know, God is going to make someone's hands grow back, for example, if they've been amputated. Um, But we do still say things to disabled people. You know, if you pray hard enough, maybe God will take your disability away. If you drink enough green tea, if you do yoga, you know, maybe your disability will improve. And people say these kinds of things with really good intentions. You know, I, I really do believe that. But The issue here that people aren't realizing and that we need to start thinking about is that people are viewing disability as a kind of second-rate life, and that is where all that comes from, right? The reason that people want your disability to be eradicated is because they think essentially that you're a second-class citizen because they're saying your disability means that you can't participate in life in the way that able-bodied people or non-disabled people can. But the thrust of disability rights and the sort of quest for, you know, um, disability justice in the 21st century and the 20th century as well, there was definitely a very strong history of it, 
is getting people to understand that people occupy many different ways of moving through the world. And so our focus shouldn't be, for example, on a fairy tale where we have a happy ending because the maiden without hands has had her hands grow back. Instead, we have a happy ending because, you know, the king falls in love with the maiden and people come to help her and, you know, make a society where she can survive without her hands, right? Um, They adapt the society to fit her rather than changing her body so that she once more fits into the molds that society already has. That's super powerful stuff. I know you mentioned changelings in your book in terms of an example of this in fairy tales and in like old folk traditions and stuff like that. I'm curious, we've talked about the aspect of changelings in neurodiversity before, and uh, in particular, like autism and Asperger's and that uh, spectrum. Uh, I'm curious as to what your thoughts are, and if you could share them with our audience. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert in this mm. ar- arena by any way, shape or form. Um, but in the course of writing for the book, I was really struck by, like, for example, um, when you look at something like neurodivergence, one of the reasons that people gave for fairy changelings in the 17th and 18th centuries was this idea that fairies sort of culturally were supposed to have very specific behaviors that corresponded Mm -hmm. to what we now know are elements of of what it means to be autistic, right? So a fascination uh, and a focus on doing repetitive tasks. So one of the fairy Um, one of the tropes of fairies was that they would spend long amounts of time counting gold coins, for example. So, you know, in a society that maybe was sort of steeped in this kind of mythology and didn't have any scientific knowledge to think or, you know, imagine otherwise, would look at perhaps an autistic child or a neurodivergent child who was maybe engaging in stimming behaviors or, you know, repetitive action and think, oh, that child, you know, has been taken by the fairies. Um, Again, because there was this very sort of clear idea of what a society was, right, and how a person was supposed to behave in that society. So there was no room for people who were different or otherwise marked in some way to excel in that society. Um, And and no one ever thought to change the society itself. Mm. Um, And I I mean, there's there's so many ways that you can look at that, right, because there's so much that's bound up in it. There's a lot of, of class. There's a lot of economic questions about who has privilege and who doesn't and who has the power to change these kinds of structures. I mean, if you're in the peasant class, for example, in the 16th and 17th centuries, and you're maybe illiterate and all you have are these stories that you tell each other in front of the fires at night, you don't have a lot of power and a lot of ability to change the society in which you live. So, you know, a family that has a disabled child born to them didn't have as many options as obviously they do now. And I think it really speaks to the level of growth and the level of exciting things that have happened in the, in the terms of disability awareness and disability growth and, and um, rights, because I think there's that real shift from, you know, it's not the body that's the problem. It's, it's the world around the body that needs to change. And it's the world around the body that can change, actually. Um, you know, back in, in the days of fairy tales, it, people would think of magic because magic was an option, right? It, it was sort of a, a wistful option, yes, but people didn't know science. They didn't know about various, you know, things that could happen in terms of therapy or, or whatever. So they would just look to magic to quote unquote solve a problem. 
Whereas now, I think we understand that there is a particular kind of magic inherent in the societies that we live in and the fact that those societies can grow and change and that disabled people in particular, I think, have a very specific, interesting insight into the world and into how we can adapt and change to, you know, become better. And that's particularly, I think, relevant now in, the, in this age of, you know, the, the COVID-19 pandemic. We're seeing so many instances, even just in the last few weeks, of societal change and disruption in, in terms of even things like working from home or, you know, getting, you know, your groceries delivered. All of these things used to be frowned upon by society and sort of hallmarks of quote unquote lazy people who, you know, couldn't come into the office or couldn't come to the door to get their delivery or anything like that. Now, I think people are recognizing that, you know, actually there are some people and there are some instances for whom these changes need to happen and these changes need to be implemented because, again, we don't all walk or move through the world in the same kind of way. And it's to everyone's benefit to build a world that is encompassing of all of these different kinds of ways of moving. Absolutely. In, in the book, you have a really helpful kind of disambiguation of the social model of disability versus the medical model of disability, pointing out that like if a building has elevators and accessible entryways, the fact that someone might be using a wheelchair doesn't limit them in any way. But in contrast, if the building is inaccessible, then it like indicates that structurally the building has failed to take the considerations of every different kind of body into account, uh, to quote you to you. Yes. <laughs> Julia, we are really in an unprecedented time of baking. Mm. Lots of people are taking this very seriously. Lots of people have moved on from a, a brownie or a pumpkin bread or a cupcake into that Herculean effort mm. of yeasted dough baking. And I am still but a beginner. I am still learning to roll my rock um, up that hill, not not like hoisting it on top of my head victoriously. Mm -hmm. But I feel like I really made a big step this week when I took a class on Skillshare called Easy and Versatile Baking, One Yeast Dough You Need to Know from Ooh. former guest Julia Tertian. Ooh, that sounds delightful. Like all of Skillshare's classes, this is uh, short but packed with information and really easy to follow along. So uh, Julia, over a 25-minute class, teaches you how to combine ingredients properly, how to knead dough, which is one of those things that if someone isn't there showing you, feels like it's so hard to learn. The how and why of yeast dough rising, so you're not just kind of like following a recipe, but you're kind of understanding why you're taking all these steps. And her signature raspberry jam buns, Ooh. which look absolutely fantastic look like cinnamon rolls but they have raspberry jam in them incredible if only all julia's could bake as well as julia tertian i know i love that we have a, an amanda guest and a julia class spotlight on this episode mm -hmm. um and you can watch julia's class and learn from her along with the tens of thousands of other classes that skillshare has to offer at skillshare.com spirits2 that will get you two free months of premium membership. Skillshare has classes on everything from business to entrepreneurship to lifestyle things like baking and all that's intended to settle your mind, to help you be more creative and just to progress your life and to do more things that you want to do. Longtime sponsor of the show and we really appreciate their ongoing support. So check out Skillshare.com spirits2 for two free months of premium membership. Yep, that's two months free at Skillshare.com slash spirits2. Man, I'm sitting here very comfortably today, despite the fact that I have a bra on, because that bra <gasps> is a third love bra. 
gasp. I thought it was impossible. It's not impossible because Third Love makes extremely comfortable bras and they make them so that everyone who wears a bra can feel comfortable and confident every day. With the right support, they can help anyone do that. That's so true. And Julia, how did you figure out the right fit for you? Well, I took the Fit Finder quiz, Amanda. Thank you for asking. It's very easy. You just have to answer a few simple questions to find your perfect fit. It only takes about 60 seconds. Over 15 million people have taken the quiz to date, and it's actually fun, and it teaches you stuff like, hey, your breast shape actually matters in finding a good fit for a bra, and it helps you identify both your breast shape and your size, and it helps you find styles that fit your body. And of course, Amanda, even if I had gotten this bra and it didn't quite fit me the way I was hoping, they have a perfect fit promise, which means every customer has 60 days to wear their bra, wash that bra, put it to the test. And if you don't love it, you can just return it and third level wash it and actually donate it to people in need. And returns and exchanges are always free, which is huge because no matter what, you might want a different fit, a different style. And knowing that you're not penalized for needing to make that change is awesome. Yeah. And the best part is, like I said, it is by far the most comfortable bra you'll own. The straps don't slip off of my shoulders ever. They have these tagless labels, so it's never like itching or like sticking into me funny. And they have this lightweight, super thin memory foam cups that mold to the shape of your breast, which is super, super comfy, and it makes them look great. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra out there for everybody who needs one. So right now they're offering 15% off your first order at thirdlove.com spirits. Yeah, go find your perfect fitting bra right now and get 15% off your first purchase by going to thirdlove.com slash spirits for 15% off today. That's thirdlove.com slash spirits. Finally, we are sponsored this week by Zombies Run. As you've heard us say over the last few episodes, this is an app that helps turn your home exercise, whether that's running, jogging, walking, bodyweight workouts into an exciting adventure. But did you know, Julia, that they're not all zombies? Hmm. They've launched a new series of missions called New Adventures, many of which don't feature any zombies at all, if that's not your bag. Hell yeah, sometimes I don't want to be chased by zombies. Sometimes no. I want to, I don't know, go to Venus or something. Well, I have great news, which is that the new adventures range from a sci-fi epic on Venus to a fantasy set at Hadrian's Wall as you race to prevent a war between Roman legions and Picts. Ooh. So all of you history nerds, and I know you're out there, will really enjoy that one in particular. You can even learn something as you do so because they have some new adventures that are made in partnership with the British Science Association, including Run the Solar System and Run to the Deep, both of which make it really like understandable in your body, these vast distances between planets and down into the ocean. Yeah, so if you're not into zombies or you're just not feeling zombies right now, they will have something that you'll love. So go download it now on your iPhone or Android. You just have to search Zombies Run. That's Zombies Run in the App Store for your phone. And now let's get back to the show. As we sort of um, look, and I think it's a perfect transition to the way that these narratives continue to function um, in society now, I think that kind of pointing out the fact that these like Disney movies we all grew up with are, you know, deeply problematic and propagate um, this problematic narrative of disability. Can you go through the sort of Disneyfication of these fairy tales and uh, how some of these films, you know, do and don't kind of hold that up and, and propagate it forward? So we'll start with The Little Mermaid because it was my favorite classic growing up. My sister and I, as I talk about in the book, wore our VHS tape out and had to get a new one because we just watched it so often. Um, so in the Disney version of The Little Mermaid, for anybody who may not know, you have Ariel, who is the mermaid, who becomes a human because she falls in love with Eric, the prince. And in 
the Disney version, she, you know, experiences a number of adventures and eventually wins Eric and has is made a human at the end of the, the film. In the Hans Christian Andersen version, which is the original fairy tale, which was published in the late 1800s, the Little Mermaid uh, has her cu- tongue cut out by a sea witch in order to become a human. So she becomes human. She has legs. She has a prince that she's fallen in love with, but she can't speak to him. And he doesn't really make any move toward learning to communicate with her. He doesn't really make any move to communicate with her in the Disney version either, which is I always found really interesting. In the Hans Christian Andersen version, instead of getting her uh, prince at the end of the tale, the Little Mermaid dies. She is told to kill the prince in order to become a mermaid again and return to her life in the sea. And she can't do it. So she throws herself to death off a cliff, which obviously is, you know, a detail that was scrubbed from the Disney version. Um, But it was really interesting to me in the course of writing Disfigured because suddenly, you know, there were two versions of the tale that I was looking at and both of them looked at disability in very specific particular ways. In both tales, you have a woman who has lost her power to communicate uh, and no one is is stepping up to communicate with her. Um, no one is is making a move to communicate with her. And it really was emblematic to me of, of the ways that society for so long has not moved toward accommodating and communicating with disabled people. With the two of them, it was just really interesting to me because they, they sort of talked about two different ways that the disabled life could end, right? It either ends in pain and suffering because you don't get what you want, which is to be a quote unquote perfect human. Um, The Little Mermaid of Hans Christian Andersen fame, you know, wanted to be walking. She wanted to have a voice. She wanted to have her prince and she couldn't have all of those things. So she dies in the end. And the princess in the Disney version becomes a human and gets her voice back and, you know, has her fairy tale ending, her fairy tale wedding at the end. And it was really sort of emblematic to me of, of the way that disabled people can only ever hope to achieve a happy ending of some kind if their disability is eradicated or is made to go away by the end of a story. And, you know, that's really tricky because I think in one way, um, talking about disability as something that, you know, is simplified by a happy ending is a very real thing, right? You have disability activists who for years have been arguing and saying disability is a huge part of who I am. And if you were to take that away, I wouldn't, in fact, you know, be happier because you've taken away a huge part of what has shaped my view of the world. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I was doing a podcast with an interviewer who was born blind. And she said, she was like, you know, if, if someone offered me the gift of sight, quote unquote, today, or made me sighted. She's like, I wouldn't know what to do. I wouldn't know how to move through the world. I wouldn't know what things were. I would just, I would be absolutely completely lost because this is the only thing that I have ever known. And I've never wanted to know any differently. And so Mm -hmm. I think there's definitely, you know, an, an element of that where we look at fairy tales and we look at these stories that we tell, and we have to understand that for some people, a happy ending is not having a disability go away. Like the happy ending is, having the world acknowledge this different body that you have, this this disabled body that you have and coming to meet you there. And at the same time, you know, there are other elements of disability, you know, one of them being chronic pain, for example, that I know many disabled people would be quite happy to have leave their lives. Um, but also at the same time, you know, 
they're very conscious of the ways that this chronic pain and other conditions have shaped who they are. So it's a very tricky, if it's a very tricky path to go down. Uh, but I think one of the key messages and takeaways for me, once I had finished working through Disfigured and talking to all of the people that I interview in the book, was how society, by and large, has not really historically listened to disabled people. And the time has come for disabled people to be listened to more and to really, people need to pay attention to what disabled people are saying, because we do have very specific insights into how the world can be built to accommodate others and how the world can improve to take into account all of the various needs of people in the population. And, you know, even though we are in quite an upheaval kind of time, there is a part of me that thinks, you know, now is is really the perfect time for disabled people to be giving this insight to the world, because this essentially is the world that we've been living in for a really long time. Sorry, I went off on a bit of a tangent there. No, 100%. Are there fairy tales with really, or stories with really kick-ass, uh, you know, uh, depictions of disability? You know... I get that asked that question a lot. And oh no, Cardinal Sin of interviewing. No, 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 no. It just uh it illuminates something for me because I don't really have an answer for that question. I think there are definitely um there's a, a writer by the name of Leo Bardugo who has a wonderful series featuring disabled characters. Um there is an, a writer in the States by the name of Alice Wong who has edited an anthology of works by disabled people that'll be coming out later in the summer. Um, and there's another disabled writer by the name of Elsa Hunisan, who I speak to and, and quote in the book um, and thank her in back, the, my long, long acknowledgements list. Um, <laughs> and she has won the Hugo and Nebula Awards for short story writing. Um, and she's done a lot of really wonderful work. But in terms of mainstream sort of easily recognizable things that, you know, even non-disabled people would maybe know. No, I can't think of any. Um, and it just goes to show uh, that, you know, we, we really have a long way to go before we get to appropriate representation for disability in fairy tales and in, in you know, other genres as well. I think, you know, I, I had the chapter on Marvel in the book because I think the comic book arena is one place where disability representation is growing and improving. A lot of the characters that we see in superhero narratives are disabled in some way. But one of the things that we need to look at there, too, is the idea that, you know, the superhero is essentially the embodiment of the differently abled stereotype, right? Where the idea is, is oh, well, you know, Daredevil can't see, but look at all of these other things that he can do. And differently abled as a term, you know, um, again, I think had people had good intentions when they initially came up with it because they wanted to not focus on someone's disability because they thought that focusing on a disability was bad. And so the idea was going to be, well, instead of focusing on all these things that you can't do, let's just focus on the things you, that you can do. But that in many ways can be really condescending, actually, because it's essentially saying, well, you know, you in your wheelchair can't get into this building that has steps, but you know, you can go into this park. So you should be happy with going into the park. When the person in the wheelchair is saying, well, actually, no, I want to get into that building because, you know, I'm a doctor and I want to work in that hospital or for whatever reasons. So saying something like differently abled and using the comic book sort of superhero version of disability as a kind of inspirational trope 
can be quite problematic. I think ultimately what we want, I mean, I do want more representations of disability in comic book storytelling. I want more representations of disability in fairy tales in in positive ways, but it's going to take a while for us to get there. Uh, You know, can you guys think of one major representation of, you know, a quadriplegic in mainstream movies that has come out in the last couple of years? No, no. See, I can think of one and it was the character in the movie Me Before You, based on a book written by Jojo Moyes. And it starred Emilia Clark. And she falls in love with a man who becomes quadriplegic as a result of an accident. And he decides to kill himself at the end of the film um, because he doesn't think that living as a quadriplegic is, is worth living. And, you know, that is the only representation of quadriplegia that I can think of in the last couple of years. Actually, no, that's wrong. There was also that film that came out last year with Brian Cranston. Right. But the idea there too, um, and I haven't seen the Brian Cranston film, but once again, the idea there is, you know, this focus on, well, you know, your life has changed and is quite different, but you should still focus on the things, you know, you can still laugh in the, in the case of the Brian Cranston film. I think there were some stills that I saw from television um, shows about it and, previews and trailers that, you know, showed him laughing with uh, the the person that came to care for him. Um, But I guess the the problem is that, you know, these narratives always start out with somebody who is grieving and angry at the fact that they have become disabled. And, you know, their narratives generally go one of two ways. They either end in pain and suffering, like the fairy tales of yore used to do, or their disability is eradicated in some way, or they are, you know, made to enjoy life again through virtue of a kind, non-disabled, able-bodied person who, you know, appears in their life as a savior. And I just think we need more representation of stories than that. It can't just be those two or three endings for someone who has been faced with a disability, because the reality of the matter is, you know, like the woman that I was speaking to a couple of weeks ago who is blind, for many people who perhaps are born with various disabilities, this is the only life that they know. So of course they would be happy and comfortable with this only life that they know. And why don't we have stories and movies that show that? Why don't we have, you know, films about girls who have cerebral palsy and walk with crutches or, you know, use a wheelchair and manage to kick ass at the same time? Um, We really need more variety in that representation and I think key to that is allowing disabled people the opportunity to tell their own stories. So to write their memoirs, to write fictional accounts, you know, to write novels and short stories and all those kinds of things. And then also to act in films, to act as consultants on films so that you're not portraying disability through the able-bodied gaze, which is what so often happens. Absolutely. And I I really appreciated just kind of talking back about how our current circumstances with COVID-19 might uh, force, you know, people who have had the privilege not to think about this gigantic um, issue to consider in their daily lives, um, is that this kind of idea of usefulness, um, of of saying that only lives that are useful to society in like very um, strictly defined ways, you know, are worth preserving or worth privileging with kind of our infrastructure. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, we can all realize that 
that's not a way to run the world and not productive, not helpful, you know, not any of the like lenses you want to put on it um, to kind of justify besides just morality, like why that is wrong. Yes, absolutely. I imagine a lot of our listeners are going to be really um, excited to continue to like open their perspective and kind of challenge what they think of as normal and the fairy tales and, uh, you know, ways that those stories kind of make us consider the world in ways that we not, might not even be conscious of. Are there kind of further reading more of the scholars that you quote in the book and, and activists that you would recommend people follow, whether it's on social media or books that you have found helpful or films or, or shows, you know, that you kind of love to watch to help people sort of continue their reading and, and kind of cultural, uh, you know, consumption? For me, uh, you know, I, I grew up obviously disabled, but I had a really sort of particular relationship to it where I kind of pretended for a long time that I wasn't. I have a limp and it's a noticeable limp, but I can minimize it in some ways. So I spent a long part of my adolescence and early 20s trying to pretend that my disability wasn't there. So I essentially came to disability activism late uh, in my sort of early 30s. I'm 37 now. And one of the things that was really, really key for me when I first started on this journey was social media. Um, For many disabled people, social media offers a real window into the world in ways that uh, disabled people have not traditionally had access to before. So what I did, um, even before I was, you know, thinking of writing Disfigured, when I was just kind of coming to terms with my identity as a disabled woman and wanting to learn more about different resources and stuff that were out there for disabled people, one of the things that I did was I was on Twitter. So I just started following a lot of disability activists. So people like Alice Wong, people like Rebecca Coakley. Uh, people like Dominic Evans, who is a trans uh, filmmaker in the States, Elsa Hunesan, and then some other people as well, um, many of whom are, are cited in the back of the book. And what I did for probably the better part of a year, I would think, is I didn't participate in conversations at all. I just sort of watched them and listened and listened to what people would say. Uh, Imani Barberin is another activist that I should mention. She's probably known to many people because she has a huge Twitter following already. Um, But she has done a lot of disability activism. Velissa Thompson is another name as well, again, based in the States. And basically, I just sort of watched what people had to say. And, you know, I would follow links that people posted on Twitter and learn about things like the fact that disabled people can get paid less than minimum wage in the States, Um, you know, and, and that's still a common practice. And, you know, looking at those various things kind of led me down to other rabbit holes and introduced me to other people. So I would really, you know, especially for someone who maybe doesn't have a lot of experience with disability activism or learning about disability issues, I think that would be the first sort of port of call is to just follow, you know, type disability activism into Twitter or into Facebook um, or into Google and see what comes up and really just start reading articles and following people and seeing what they have to say. And maybe, you know, refrain from engaging on some level for the first little while, just as you sort of learn and kind of understand where people are coming from and what their particular experiences, how they influence what people have to say. I think that is excellent advice. And I will make a point of linking all of those names that you just suggested so that people have easy access to them and finding them online. Thank you so much. That would be much appreciated. (laughs) 
And you can also find a link to Disfigured by Amanda LaDuke on fairy tales, disability, and making space in the episode description. Great. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. I hope that everybody goes out and buys your book or requests it at their local library because I am enjoying it so much. It's making me want to rewatch and rethink all of the stories that I thought I knew. So thank you for writing it and for coming on the show. And is there anything else that you would like to plug where folks can follow you um, online or check out your website, anything like that? Yeah. Um, as I say, I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter at Amanda LaDuke. Uh, and then my website is amandaladuke.com. Uh, and I list various interviews and, and upcoming, well, not that there are any upcoming appearances right now, given the current situation in which we are in, but information on, you know, digital appearances and um, that sort of virtual book club stuff uh, will be coming in the coming days. So please, yes, check out my website and, and feel free to get in touch too. I always, I love hearing from readers. So I would absolutely encourage that. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And remember listeners, stay creepy, stay cool. Thanks again to our sponsors at Skillshare.com slash Spirits 2. You can get two free months of Skillshare Premium. ThirdLove.com slash Spirits, you'll get 15% off your first purchase. And you can download Zombies Run and their new adventures in the iPhone or Android App Store. Spirits was created by Amanda McLaughlin, Julia Shafini, and Eric Schneider, with music by Kevin McLeod and visual design by Allison Wakeman. Keep up with all things creepy and cool by following us at Spirits Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr. We also have all of our episode transcripts, guest appearances, and merch on our website, as well as a form to send us your urban legends at spiritspodcast.com. Join our member community on Patreon, patreon.com slash spiritspodcast for all kinds of behind the scenes stuff. Just $1 gets you access to audio extras with so much more available too. Recipe cards, director's commentaries, exclusive merch, and real physical gifts. We are a founding member of Multitude, a collective of independent audio professionals. If you like spirits, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. And above all else, if you liked what you heard today, please share us with your friends. That is the very best way to help us keep on growing. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time. <laughs>